Hey, Whiskeringers, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. I know last week's intro was super long, so this week we're going to make it a little bit shorter. Just a couple of updates. Number one, thank you to all of you who have joined the Patreon community in the past week. It is unbelievably appreciated, and I really hope you enjoy the first episode of Under the Influencer with John Hughes from Embellish Pod. He's going to be uh, this week's episode as well. It's a two-parter. Next week is going to be Frank from Burb Your Enthusiasm, and we've got more guests coming on every week friday 5 p.m goes live via patreon uh you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month if you just want to stay up to date with these changes news what's coming up uh at five dollars start getting access to the under the influencer episodes uh priority access to barrel picks and all that good stuff and you can find more information on patreon.com slash whiskey in my wedding ring uh one other quick update there are three events coming up uh, the first one that I'll talk about this time is that Advent Calendar for July. It is an Advent Calendar, 15 pours, 15 different producers, uh, 14 different distilleries. Might be 15 now because I had to switch something out. And it's all curated by me. It's only available if you're in the Whiskey Ringers Facebook group. So go ahead and join today. It's a private group. You can apply to join. www.facebook.com slash groups slash Whiskey Ringers. Go ahead. Answer those three easy questions. And go ahead and order that advent calendar. Uh, if we can get them out by next week, then we can start on the 1st of July. And as of this recording, there are eight claims, so there are only seven left. Uh, they are going like hotcakes. We're getting one sold every day. So please make sure to take a look and order yours today. All right, that was long enough. Thanks for listening for this. And here is David Mandel of Kentucky Owl. Kentucky Bourbon Festival, and formerly of Bardstown Bourbon Company. Hey, Whiskey Ringers, welcome to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast today. I'm thrilled to have on David Mandel. You know him from any number of things down in Kentucky. You know him from Bardstown Bourbon Company. You know him from now Kentucky Owl, from the Kentucky Bourbon Festival. If it's got Kentucky, 50% chance he's involved. So, David, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Really, really a pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. I'm glad we can, uh, you know, make this happen. Your schedule with everything you're involved in is, is crazy. So I'm very glad to have you on the show. So, you know, let's just dive right in. Let's start with, uh, I think most people probably know you most from your uh, time at Bardstown. Uh, so why don't we jump right in there, you know, how you got into Bardstown and your time there. You know, it's been, look, it's been a wonderful, wonderful uh, career so far. And I've been very lucky, David, to have a lot of people that gave me some wonderful opportunities along the way. You know, I grew up in Philadelphia. I went to school in St. Louis where I met, you know, my, uh, you know, my college roommate who ended up becoming one of my, you know, close business partners, Dan Lind. And, um, you know, and after college, went to law school, came back to Philadelphia, practiced law, you know, ended up in government. I was counsel of the chairman of the National Transportation Safety Board and got the wonderful opportunity to be uh, the youngest chief of staff of the FAA, Federal Aviation Administration. And it was during that time that, you know, we, that's how I got into this, to the alcohol business. We was out uh, drinking Red Bull and vodka one night on a trip uh, in LA for the FAA and with Dan Lynn. And we said, you know, what are we doing? You know, we're trying to make you know, alcohol that doesn't make you tired. Why don't we just make alcohol that doesn't make you tired? And so that was the, you know, we started into that and learned the business. He left his job. I left mine. We ended up in a two bedroom apartment, Lower East Side with one of our other partners. And, um, and that's how we learned the business. And I would love to tell you that, 
you know, when we created pink vodka, which was the first caffeinated alcohol, that was a wonderful success. So it wasn't, um, it was one of those things. It was a, a tremendous learning opportunity. You know, we sold the business in, in 2008 during the financial crisis and, um, you know, and we had a long tail on the business, but caffeine and alcohol kind of went out of favor with the government after a while. And after caffeinated alcohol, we got into whiskey and, but, you know, when you look back at all of these stages, you know, in your life, whether it was practicing law, whether it was, you know, National Transportation Safety Board, FAA, I, you know, I take, I took something from each one of those, you know, in, in law, you learned, you know, how to think, you know, and how to kind of analyze and how to deal with certain situations. National Transportation Safety Board learned crisis management. FAA learned, you know, how to really work and manage people. You know, we learned the alcohol business. We learned the startup business. We took all of that from all of us, you know, and all our collective experiences. We went out and we built Bardstown Bourbon Company. And it was very much, you know, the, you know, the coming together of all the things that we learned, we poured into that. And Bardstown Bourbon was a remarkable experience. And I, you know, to this day still live here in Bardstown and fully integrated in the community here. But we went out in 2013 with the idea to build a distillery. And we created a, you know, collaborative distilling program. We saw the opportunity to do custom whiskey production. And that was the beginning. It was the beginning of, you know, that wonderful chapter. And, you know, just to jump back a little bit, I had some reason forgotten to write in my notes. I remember that you had been at the NTSB and the FAA. Uh, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, we've had a lot of people on the show so far. You're, um, I'm not sure exactly which episode it's going to be, but I've been very fortunate to have a lot of people on from very, very different backgrounds. Right. Um, you know, we have plenty of people who are home distillers who start out that way, who start out because they have fruit in, you know, and they're distilling that. Some people come from the wine industry, they move into spirits. I don't yet think I've had anybody who pretty <laughs> directly came from like government and law into, into right. spirits. Uh so, you know, you're coming from, uh, from Philadelphia and make your way to Bardstown in between there. I'm curious what the, the transition was going from, uh, the pink vodka, the caffeinated vodka to bourbon, to whiskey, to doing it in Kentucky, as opposed to, you know, Philadelphia, um, you know, where did that transition happen? Well, it's interesting because, you know, along the way, so it's just how we ended up you know, in Bardstown, Dan and I, we did some very interesting work in between pink and Bardstown. Um, and we worked on the original uh, concept for Hillhaven Lodge, which was a product that was put out by Brett Ratner and Diageo ultimately. But we, you know, but we actually did a lot of that early work with them and learned the whiskey, saw where things were going with whiskey. And this is now back in 2008, 2009. And we worked on that for quite some time. Um, and, uh, you know, we saw where the whiskey industry was going, it was growing. And as we, you know, through that process, you know, I was introduced to, you know, my then, uh, you know, what became my next business partner, Peter Lofton, one of the, one of the other co-founders of Bardstown Bourbon Company, you know, and we had the idea to build, you know, a distillery in Kentucky. But when we came out, when I came out to Bardstown in 2013, it was a very different concept. We were going to build something small. We were looking for a small amount of land. And as we got into it, we got immersed in the business and we started seeing things. 
you know, Dan and I saw this, um, we saw this need to do custom whiskey production for others. And so it was something that wasn't being done. You know, we call it contract production, but the where it existed at that time is you had companies like Heaven Hill or Jim Beam or Barton that were selling excess capacity, you know, to brands. But if you, if they produced for you, you weren't allowed to say where it came from. You got what you got. You really didn't get custom production. Customer service was sort of, was non-existent. And this is not, that's not disparaging. They, they were just selling excess capacity. And sure. as the market grew, they needed to keep all that capacity. So they had to get, you know, they had to basically, you know, uh, you know, move, move those contracts or end those contracts. And we saw this tremendous opportunity. So why don't we provide the level of customer service that exists in all other industries or many other industries that doesn't exist here? And we'll do custom production. We'll build a facility that they can be proud of, that they can integrate in, that they can showcase their brands, you know, and we'll make it exclusive and we'll provide this, you know, this level of quality and production customer service that doesn't exist anywhere else. And with that idea, we sold out the entire capacity of the distillery before we even had built it. And then we had to figure out how to do it. <laughs> that was the next like really important moment. But um, that was that was the kind of game changer because in the industry, what that gave us was that gave us the cash flow and that gave us the ability to then invest in other aspects of the business where if you didn't have that, you know, you just have a giant sucking sound coming out of that operation because you're mm-hmm. investing in a brand and you're growing the brand, but that takes a very long time. So where's all that money coming from? That's why it's so That's why this business, honestly, it's such a hard business, the spirits industry. And everybody thinks it's sexy and easy, but it's really hard. Well, sexy for sure, but no, easy. It's not, like you said, there's a huge financial barrier to entry. There's any number of regulation barriers to entry. Uh, talked with a few people who kind of started in the brewing industry or even wine and moved over to distilling. And they're like, well, you know, just fermenting it is fun and easy, but you can turn around beer in a couple of days and, you know, likely nothing's going to explode. That's right. David. And, you know, and, but you know, the other, the biggest, I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges that people don't, I think they underestimate is, is this is like, is to get something and to have you, if I want to, if the, let's say this is something new, right. We happen to be tonight drinking Kentucky Owl confiscated, but for me to, to drink this or try this, over what I normally drink, it requires a change. So the person actually has to say, I'm not gonna get this and I'm now gonna get this. So how do you get the consumer to switch from this to that? And so that's very interesting because they have to make, what I believe you have to make a connection with the consumer that draws them to this product in a way that not only do they wanna try it and accept it, they wanna then buy it and then they wanna go tell people about it. And that requires a, a relationship with the product. So what is your opportunity to create that relationship? Well, you go, go into a total wine, you see a wall of a thousand bourbons. How, how do you do that? Right? Like you walk yep. in and if you're a product, how are you going to do that? Just because you're on the shelf, people aren't going to find you. They're not going to know who you are. You go into a bar. It's the same scenario. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to look on the back bar and say, oh, you know, tell me about that product. You know, maybe the bartender rec- recommends something. But you've got all the companies competing in that environment for the same attention. So what we saw in Bardstown was this opportunity to create a place where we brought people in, 
we immersed them in what in our in our culture and what we were creating. We created the restaurant for the same reason because we captivate you, we keep you there. And by the time you left Bardstown, between tours, tasting, dinner at the restaurant, you know, interacting with our team, you not only were fully on board with this product, you were buying it again and you were telling everybody. But that's a long process. It takes a tremendous amount of time, hard work, and you have to do it over and over and over again for years. And it's not guaranteed it's going to work, but it's you know one of the best ways that you make that connection because then all those people go out, they tell everybody about the amazing time that they had at Bardstown and the product, you know, and and it spreads. It just takes. It's hard. It's hard work. Absolutely. And you know, cheers. I'm drinking the. Uh... The Bardstown Discovery Seven mm. series, absolutely fabulous product, and you know, and kudos to Dan Calloway and the team there, who's absolutely exceptional in terms of making um, those products. Um, Discovery Fusion, the collaborative series, you know, those were products that you know we created together, and um, you know, it's really groundbreaking stuff that that happened at that at that company. And you know, we won't spend the whole time in Bardstown, I promise. Um, talk about anything but, but you know there are two things i wanted to kind of go into that you uh, just mentioned the first one being the experience you know bardstown is by most accounts it's kind of the, the first wave of urban tourism as an experience you know as we know it today uh you know the first one you're like going into the distillery you're going you're seeing the stills you're trying the stuff then you go <clears throat> pardon me you're going to the restaurant you're going as you said it's an it's an experience like a Napa Valley or a Sonoma type experience. Um, And it makes me ask the question, you know, again, NTSB, FAA, law school, being a lawyer, um, where did the very obvious like marketing acumen come from? Is that kind of just a natural thing? Was it the partners that come out? It's interesting. I mean, first of all, we have a great team, you know, and that's one of the things that I really love doing is building a great team. But I'll also tell you one of the things I actually really enjoy I enjoy branding. I enjoy creating experiences. Again, as you think back and you take like all those aspects, you know, one of my partners, Garnett Black, who is our head of hospitality at Bardstown, during one of our, you know, one of our kind of uh, offshoots in our career, we went back with the head of, um, with the former head of the FAA, Marion Blakey, who had become the president and CEO of the Aerospace Industries Association, where was represented all the major aerospace and defense companies. And we joined her to help her rebuild that organization. It's the largest and oldest, sorry, the oldest association in the country. It dates back to the, you know, before the Wright brothers. And we built the, rebuilt that organization by putting on a series of extremely high-end events for the CEOs of the major aerospace and defense companies. And we did that for five years. And one of the things that we learned in that business was the power of creating experiences. And so like, I love branding. I love marketing. It was just, you know, there was something, you know, I just happened to be a person that was, you know, a very creative person. And when we did that together, we took what we learned in that and we brought a lot of that into what we, you know, into kind of the DNA of Bardstown. And so, it's funny as you look back again at your career and you take these little bits and pieces. You know, I'll tell you. So when I I went originally to Washington University, I went into history and 
uh, English minor, history major, English minor, I'd originally wanted to go to film school and my father talked me out of it. I was going to go to Tisch at NYU. It was one of those moments when, you know, um, you know, my father said to me, well, what are you going to do with it? Like, you're not, you're going to end up unemployed. Right. It's like, okay, fine. You know what? You know, you know, life would have been very different, but that, that sort of is in me. I enjoy that, but you find he was right. And as I look back, I never would be where I was today. Had I done, had I taken that path, um, maybe it would have been, you know, who knows next Jerry Bruckheimer, but uh, doubtful, but um, you know, you look back at those moments and you find then ways to take those things that really interest you and, you know, bring them out, you know? And so that's, that's what I did throughout, you know, my career. And I've been lucky enough to have wonderfully creative people around me too. It's been good so far. I mean, I've been, uh, again, talking to a lot of people and some people have trouble with the, the self brag, if you will. And I mean that positively as something it's like, no, you're just, you're good at it. If you're good at something, it's, okay to say, you know, I just, I'm just good at it. And well, you know, I think we all, you, you never want to say that because like, you know, you're only as good as the last thing that you've done. So, right. You know, it's like always like knock on wood. Um, but that's fair. I, I just look back to, um, to other people who they, of course, lavish praise on as you have partners and, and people who help you along the way. And that is exactly what you should do as well. Um, but sometimes I think people in this industry are almost a little bit too humble sometimes be like, no, created a good product stand behind it. So I, you know, I like it when I hear someone say, nope, I'm just good at this. I had people around me, but I'm also good at it. Um, I know it's a weird, that's a weird thing, but it's, you know, when you look at, I'll tell you, like when we look at, um, the thing that I'm most proud of, um, from looking back at what we did at Bardstown was the team that we created. And that's absolutely the truth because, you know, I, I mean, I can honestly tell you, I knew nothing about distilling, right? But we knew what we needed to do and we needed to build the best team, right? So we did that, you know, and it went through different stages, you know, and it ultimately, you know, ultimately, you know, the pinnacle was was being able to attract, you know, John Hargrove from Barton Brands to help us build out what was became at the time the most sophisticated, you know, custom whiskey production facility, you know, in the country. And that was directly a result of what he brought, you know, to the table. And we were able to attract him, but we were able to attract him because we had created a culture, you know, a culture that respected people, a culture that really valued people, you know, and we built this incredibly dynamic group within the company where we had the best of the best uh, distillery operators. We had a J1 visa program that we did where we bring brought in over 20 culinary students from around the world um, that worked in the restaurants, you this inc- this amazing international component. This was energy that just lived in the facility. Um, we had a bar team, we had a restaurant team, we had a uh, we had a distilling team. They would all meet in the evening, and then they'd start working together. And this is where the idea came for fusion and discovery. And you know, one of the things I saw was everybody working together. And this idea went off, and I was like, wait a second. You know, long has passed this idea of just the master distiller, you know, the the fiction, I'll call it, of the master distiller, one person that decides everything. You know, it has its role. But isn't it more interesting if you have teams, a beverage team that looks at cocktail balance, a culinary team that looks at pairings, 
a distilling team that looks at distilling methods and they all come together to make our products. And so that's how we did it. And it was remarkable. It's remarkable what happens when you take everybody's ideas and energy and put them together and let it loose. And that is what you know, led to you know, all of this. You know, right. It sits behind me. So going back to your original point, it's not just about me by any means. You, know, you, you got to give freedom to everybody to create. And that's what we did. Of course, absolutely. And, you know, we could go on a whole, a whole rabbit hole, uh, extending the metaphor about um, blending and the, the skills of the blending team mm-hmm. that are clearly, clearly evident. I think it's very evident if you've ever tasted a Discovery Effusion collaborative series, you know, the skilled Bardstown blending team. Um, but, you know, just for, uh, for this interview, the, the last question I want to ask about Bardstown specifically was, as you mentioned, the idea of this contract distillation, but not contract distillation, but you know, that next level of customer service, real customization. Um, there's kind of three points on that spectrum, if you will, for me. And like one is what you said, it's the heritage brands that are that have the excess capacity or used to have the excess capacity. Um, this Bardstown starting in 2013. Um, uh, couple others starting at that around the same time, you know, like Wilderness Trail and a couple guys like that. And um, I I'm, was thinking that unlike Wilderness Trail, just to use those two comparisons, Wilderness had this idea they were going to hold off their own bourbon, right, you know, make their bourbon right away, but hold it off until a certain age, et cetera. Right. Um, but Bardstown Bourbon Company did not start creating their your own whiskey for a couple of years in. Is that correct? No, we started producing right away our own stuff. Actually, the first the first production was our own. So in September of 2016, we started making with Steve Nally, you know, a weeded whiskey. And that was the first product that went away. In fact, the first hundred barrels we gave to the employees. So that was also another wonderful, like, you know, how you build culture. So in a in a in that kind of startup environment, usually you see those early barrels, so they get sold for you know huge numbers. We gave every employee that was at the distillery those first barrels, and we continued to give every every employee that came into the distillery a barrel. And so that was one of the things that you got when you joined the team. And it's you know that was a really remarkable moment. I'll actually never forget when we made that announcement in the hall of Bardstown. Um, the reaction from the employees, but so no, we started putting away our own product right off the bat. And I think, you know, if, uh, again, I can't speak on behalf of the company, I'm, you know, we've sold it and I'm no, I'm no longer there, but um, the, uh, the pro, you know, they have an origin series that is coming and it's going to be some of that earliest product that we made, which is amazing. I'm I'm looking forward to it. And uh, my apologies for that error in research on that one. No, no, no. It's uh, it, but it is, it's uh, you know, but we did the similar things, David, that we didn't, and they have not, and to their credit, have not put out anything um, until it was ready. But what we did do is we developed the fusion series. And the whole concept behind that was how do we begin to showcase what we're making and showcase our blending skills at the same time. And so the Fusion Series was meant to be this kind of dynamic, changing product that each time it came out, there was more of our own product and then less of the blended product. And that was a unique idea. That was something nobody had done. 
And uh, that was really a lot of fun. And it's, you know, one of those things when you look back, while small, was a big addition, I think, to the bourbon industry. Absolutely. And um, so the so you had those two points in the spectrum. And the, and the middle one that I wanted to just hit on for comparison was, uh, of course, MGP. Mm-hmm. Huge. I mean, uh, when I spoke to uh, to David Whitmer from... MGP. Also just realized there are a lot of Davids I've spoken to. Anyway, um, when I spoke to David Whitmer, uh, he was explaining the, the history of MGP and all the way going back to 1847. And uh, it really was always meant as a distillery that would provide whiskey for other people. So it was kind of in between that, you know, excess capacity model where it was just whatever they had on hand and That's less right. so than where, you know, Bardstown Bourbon Company was where it's, you know, whatever you want kind of you can get and obviously in 2011 12 13 uh, as the idea is really building up uh mgp is not maybe as known to the wider bourbon audience or whiskey audience yet now it's a household name of course mm-hmm. but i was curious if you know you had had experience with them if there was oh, any kind of inspiration from them 100 we actually built bardstown after working with mgp um so mm-hmm. we bought um little unknown story if you want me to tell one um we bought 450 uh, we bought 2000 barrels of 10 year old uh indiana bourbon back in 2012-2013 for 450 dollars a barrel and in two years it went to 2800 dollars a barrel so we took a two million dollar investment and turned it into 20 million and that's how we financed uh the early development of bardstown you might be the first podcaster to know that story. Um, that's how we did it. And so we sold that off, kept some of it. The early collaborations were made with that product. So as we stand here, these two early ones that were developed with Joe Heron and Copper and Kings were actually made with that product. But that's what created the, that was the, uh, you know, the, inspiration for the collaborative series that we developed that was made with that product and it was actually used in some of the other ones but in working with mgp at the time what we saw was uh it was very directly related to i mean our experience with mgp is very directly correlated to how we developed the collaborative distilling program because we saw we saw okay well you could get from MGP, you got certain you got three mash bills basically, right? You got a mm-hmm. low rye, high rye, or a ninety-five five rye. And you know, we were working with them. We were buying. And we said, wait a second, there's there's got to be more than this. And at the same time, the consumer. And this is not disparaging of MGP in any way, but the consumer was realizing, well, all these products are coming out of one facility, and the brands understood that. And so, like, how do you compete? Well, you got to have something different. And so that was one of the real inspirations in terms of seeing that very early on and saying, we're going to do complete custom production. We're going to go a level above MGP. And that's, uh, to your point, that's exactly uh, how we got there. It was a very important piece of it. And we were intimately familiar with MGP because we worked when we owned, you know, a large inventory or what, you know, what we considered a large inventory at that time of their product. God, $450 a barrel. That's- Can you imagine? Oh my God. I, mean, I can't. I, back, we all say the same thing. Yeah. I got into whiskey in why, probably yeah, why 2015, 2016. Why don't you buy twice as much? And why don't you just sell it and not get into the business at all? And everybody could have just gone away. It'd been great. I know. 
I mean, look, I'm, I'm new enough to the whiskey world where I wasn't around for the, you know, Pappy is sitting on shelves kind of era, but um, I do remember when Stag Jr. was like actually $70 on the shelf or Booker's for 75. (laughs) Um, But anyway, so um, yes, I had to ask about MGB because for me, it's just such a natural comparison to go through those two and to do the linear kind of construction. And I'll tell you one thing, what's really remarkable about MGP is how well they have done over the last several years. I mean, it is really exciting. I, you know, first of all, I mean, I, I am very enamored by the current leadership of MGP. I think they've done an amazing job. You know, the, I think the merger with Lux Co was really smart. Don Lux is a, is actually is personally a great friend and also very, very smart. Um, but that was a great merger. You know, they're focused on building brands. They're still doing, of course, production, but they have got, you know, I think they're now, they're really now hitting a stride in terms of where the future is for MGP. And a huge piece of it is on the brand side, as it should be. Producing their own brands and really marketing out of the, the Remus and the Rossville lines. Yep. Um, while, as you said, still doing plenty of production for dozens, if not hundreds of uh, brands out there so all right perfect i mean we can also talk about mgp for hours but i want to focus on on you know what you're doing so uh as i started with we've got two other kind of areas that i want to go into with you um the first one being what you're doing now with uh kentucky owl uh and the other one being the kbf so dealer's choice where would you like to go next let's start with kentucky owl because it's a really it's a very exciting project uh, Kentucky Owl is a beautiful brand. I have a long history with them. You know, the relationship with Kentucky Owl goes back to the starting of Bardstown Bourbon Company. Um, we you know we uh, at Bardstown. I you know I met with Dixon very early on after finding his brand myself at a, a restaurant here in Bardstown called Cressos, mm-hmm. uh, and basically cold calling him and saying I wanted to meet with him. We love this brand. We'd love to do production for him. And one of our board members at the time was also a board member of Stoli, Jeff Hopmeyer, the Brindiamo Group. You probably have heard his name, another you know icon in the bourbon industry. Uh, he got he got together with Dixon, and several weeks later, Stoli bought Kentucky Al. We got the we got the production contract. So a lot of that product that is going into the Kentucky Al blends, the four year old that's in the confiscated now, that's in the Wiseman. Um, Rye and bourbon are, are all produced by in collaboration with Bardstown Bourbon Company. So we have a great, we had a great synergy with them. And so when I was coming off after I let I stepped down as CEO um, and came off my non-compete, Stoli approached me and said, Would you, you know, help us, you know, with the development of the Kentucky Owl Distillery here in Bardstown? I joined them in October of last year. It's been a wonderful relationship. We really have got the project out there on a on a great course in terms of a, you know, breaking it into manageable pieces to build It is a beautiful facility that couldn't be a, a better property, 420 acres in the center of Bardstown, 80% of it is crystal clear lake, you know, water sitting in a quarry and it is gorgeous. And so uh, it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, I'll tell you, it's a, it is the future for where, uh, Kentucky Al and Stoli see, you know, the, the brand going and what they want to build out there is very bright. So then, uh, you know, how, um, how far into the construction and 
towards production are you from that facility? So right now, we're in the process of developing, uh, we're in schematic design right now on a temporary visitor center that is being designed so that visitors can come in, experience the brand, tour the site while it's being constructed uh, because it is a beautiful site. We're in schematic design on the pyramid distillery that you see. So we have, we've broken it into phases. There's phase one, phase two, phase three. So first phase is infrastructure development, temporary visitor center, pyramid distilleries, visitors warehouse. Phase two then adds a more commercial distillery, uh, bottling, um, adds a, a permanent visitor center and a, some associated buildings. Then phase three, which is kind of beyond, really begins to round out, you know, the whole park. But for me, you know, the, I think the most, um, you know, the most uh, rewarding part of this, you know, project has been working with the incredible designers that are behind this. So Shigirabon Architects, of course, Joseph and Joseph that, you know, I've worked with, with for years, but we've got a great team of visionaries um, that just see some incredible things um, in this project. And it, it's very rewarding to work with those types of people. And it sounds very much like it's a, you know, coming around the bend again, kind of thing where you're creating an experience, you know, of course, these buildings have to be functional. They have to do what oh, you yeah. need them to do, but at the same time, they're going to catch the eyes. Clearly the, the um, you know, the mock-ups catch the eye alone uh, as well, a giant lake in a quarry of crystal water. I mean, it looks beautiful. And Shigirabon as an architect, I mean, he goes back, he's, you know, again, one of the, one of the icons, um, he was called the accidental environmentalist. And, you know, he has a theory or philosophy that he, you know, he follows called biophilic design, which means that the materials that uh, the building is made out of really affect the environment in which you work. So mass timber. So this is the first distillery that will be made out of mass timber. And you get the sense of being around, you know, huge timber infrastructure with a distillery in it, this connection to the physical environment around you. So you have limestone water and the limestone quarry that is used in the production. You have the wood and the associated materials that connect you to other aspects of the production all out in this environment where you kind of really see how, you know, the, you know, you're going from the, you know, kind of the origins of the product being surrounded by the natural environment and it really tells a very, very unique story about Kentucky Owl. The company is also very focused on sustainability goals, you know, as many international companies are, but uh, Stoli in particular. Um, so all of these come together in this environment right in the bourbon capital of the world. And most people don't even know that this 420 acres sits right here. And, uh, and by the way, 18 months ago, it was an empty quarry. It's now filled with water. And it is, you know, you're watching this natural habitat, you know, you know, life forms come, you know, come to life. So you've got birds, you have fish, you have like all, it's really wild. It's really neat to see. Yeah, and it's not too, Yeah. I mean, a week and a half ago, I was in Bardstown for, you know, the better part of a long weekend. It was never you have no idea it. that was there. No. None. And when no. you drive through it, you drive past it, you see like a little bit of water here, a little bit of water there. But you have no idea when you drive back, you've got five massive lakes with a peninsula in the middle of them. So this is it's unbelievable. 
it is it is i should say i sorry to correct myself on that one i was most mainly in lexington i should say and we traveled two parts down to louisville around lexington and, and south as well but um i caught myself and i was like wait nope that's not right um but in uh about just under three months i will be back in bardstown for a couple of days so um hopefully i will drive by and notice what is there are you going to be there for the bourbon festival no, unfortunately not no i'm, I'm going to be there just a couple of weeks before um i'll tell you off air why <laughs> well but, it's unfortunate you're not because the bourbon festival is shaping up to be really incredible and uh, it's my third year as chairman and another great team that we have that is making very significant changes um you know in a positive way to an event that has the the ability to bring people from all over the country that are bourbon enthusiasts looking for a unique experience and that's what we're building it around so you're you're seeing a theme here and everything you're talking about of course i mean the person that i keep thinking of uh i'm also a foodie so the culinary world you'll know him because he lived in the lower east side danny meyer of course and inside the table yep come from come for the uh, food but they come back for the experience you know it's funny so it's really funny you say that because um anybody that worked at bardstown remember this setting the table is one of the books that i you know, I live by. And um, it was a book that we gave to every employee, whether you worked in the distillery, whether you worked in the visitor's center, whether you were anywhere in the business, you, you got it when you joined and you had to read it. And the whole concept of enlightened hospitality, you know, where you're anticipating the needs of, you know, the customer and you're reacting to them, but you're proactively thinking about them. And so, you know, the analogy he always uses in the book is, you know, a vending machine, you put the quarter in, you know, it gives you the potato chips. It provides good customer service. But the difference between that and enlightened hospitality, what happens when the vending machine gets stuck? What do you do? Right. And it doesn't drop down. How do you create, take that situation and turn it from, you know, a negative into a positive? And, and that's one of the things that, you know, I've certainly looked at throughout my whole career. And it, and it goes to the whole idea of how do you create experiences? How do you anticipate the needs and the wants? of the, you know, of your consumer, you know, and, and provide that for them. But I, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Absolutely. I mean, and that the, the experiential part of it, this is pulling back from, from what I hope is my role as kind of bourbon educator. Once in a while, I tell someone that something they didn't know or introduce them to a new brand, but I'm still just as much a bourbon enthusiast and learning new things. And by bourbon, of course, whiskey as a whole, consider whiskey as a whole, uh, you know, just being, this is my first trip to Kentucky a week and a half ago. First time I'd ever been there. Went to five, six different distilleries in a couple of day period, multiple of the big stores down there, you know, really experienced the food, the people, the culture. Uh, and for me, it was, you know, it's like a trip to the Holy Land, you know, it's <laughs> right. Uh, and, and that's nothing against the distilleries that we've got right here in my backyard. Like I'm in New York City, we've got, you know, distilleries down in Brooklyn, we've got distilleries, distilleries up in the Hudson Valley. So it's not like I'm bereft of, of whiskey production, but, and some of them are really, really good in the experience. I, I will say that, but um, you just going for there for the first time, I could see at certain distilleries in particular, Bardstown being one of them. Uh, also um, not a producer anymore, but I had a tasting with Dixon, which was also all great. about the experience, you know, yep. as you know. Fabulous. Uh, and you, you can't just kind of drive up, go to the gift shop, 
see, oh yeah, those are nice warehouses and then drive out anymore. You have to, as you said, you have to build that connection with the consumer. And I saw more and more distilleries doing exactly that. Absolutely. Jim Beam is putting in a restaurant. Will it put in a restaurant? Heaven Hill built a whole new experience with a restaurant. Maker's Mark restaurant and now hotel coming. I mean, it's you. Everyone is, you know, raising the game, raising the bar. Yeah, I mean, Wild Turkey visited, uh, and they've got they built the visitor center, as I understand it. Then moved to a temporary one to rebuild the brand new visitor center to make it even better. Uh, The friend and I who were driving around went to the you know the small one, but also kind of somewhat illegally drove around to the, to the <laughs> one that's coming up. We got shooed away by the construction guys. Well, we could see like it was, it's on that hill overlooking the, the bridge crossing the, the yeah. river. Um, it's exactly what you want. It's something that you're going to remember beyond just all, all gift shops can kind of look the same after a while, but right. that patio is going to be something that differentiates them just as, you and know, walking into the restaurant at Bardstown differentiates you. That's yeah. right. You have to have it. You've yeah. got to have something there, whether it's in the product whether it's in the experience and ultimately it's great if you have all those combined. Exactly. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see it because I want as much as I'd like people to drink more bourbon um, shout out to uh, it's bourbon night. Um, you know, as much as I want people to drink more bourbon, more rye, more whiskey and try everything. Um, I also want them to really experience it and understand and, it. And, and that is exactly what we're creating at the bourbon festival in Kentucky. And so, you know, when we read, when we decided that we needed, we had to revamp the festival going back three years ago. Now, uh, Mm -hmm. when I took over as chairman, um, you know, you had a festival that was very much, uh, you know, a community event. It was, you know, for lack of a, you know, better term, it was almost like a a fair here uh, for the community in Bardstown. And it's got a long history and how it developed, but it didn't evolve as the bourbon festival evolved. And so it got to the point where, you know, the, for, in order for the, the distilleries to be able to support something like this, it's not about money. It's about being able to take your entire team and put them somewhere for a weekend with all of, with the way the industry is growing, with the, you know, the demands that you have, you know, in your visitor centers, it has to make sense. And it wasn't making sense anymore. And so we had to create that environment. We said, look, and when I took over as chairman, we made the decision. We're either going to shut it down because we were going bankrupt or we're going to rebuild it. And we all agreed we're going to rebuild it. So what does rebuilding it mean? Hire somebody that really knows festival management. And we did with Randy Prossy, who's the president and COO. He built the Gettysburg Beer Festival. He ran the, uh, the Wisconsin State Fair operations to the Derby. We hired him. We then brought the distilleries in. They said, we need a unique environment where we can get new consumers from across the country to come and interact with the brands. We did that. We built a great area outside. So now you have, we have 48 distilleries this year participating. And last year was the first year of the new, of the, the new festival, all outside, all within this great environment. And what's new this year? One ticket price. So includes all your sampling for three days. $125. Like that's an unbelievable deal. Right. We also got the law changed in Kentucky so that the distilleries can now sell bottles at each one of their, each one of their booths to mm-hmm. directly to the consumer. So you got bottle sales, you've got 
unlimited, you know, you've got open sampling for three days. You've got um, the ability to really interact. We've got single barrel picks with Justin's House Suburban, exclusive single barrel picks, you know, that for sale every day. We have great charitable auction and, and wonderful educational programming. So with a second year of the 31st annual Bourbon Festival in its new formation, it's going to continue to get better every year. And we really welcome everybody to come. The tickets are selling fast. All the VIP stuff sold out in under a day. But you can go to kybourbonfestival.com, get your tickets, come here, um, and spend the weekend with us. While a lot of the hotels in Bardstown basically sold out, you can get hotels in Elizabethtown, Shepherdsville, 20 minutes from here. You can still make it a wonderful trip. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll be honest, I, I really was looking forward to coming down. Um, again, I'll go into more of that offline. That That's fine. But uh, this was to be, uh, you know, it wasn't going to be the first time I was going to come down, but I had planned to, of course, in 2020, mm-hmm. bought the tickets before, just before COVID hit. Uh, um, yeah. I, so just in terms of timelines, I want to make sure the three years back. So you took over as head of the KBF as chairman in 2019 or 2020? I joined the board in 2019. I took over in 2020. And 2020 was uh, the first, we weren't able to pull it off in 2020 because of COVID. We went uh, virtual. Mm -hmm. And 2021 was our first year of doing it last year. And then now 2022 will be our second year. Uh, But but because of the changes that we made in the festival um, at the end of 2019 and early 2020, we were able to get the distilleries to support us. We were able to make it through that COVID year because they believed in what we were doing. They believed in Randy. They believed in the KBF. And we got a tremendous amount of support. So we did it virtually, produced some great content. And we were thoroughly enjoyed it. Times, you know, and make a buyer time and make it. And it's another... Again, uh, you know, great example of people working so hard, a team working so hard to keep it alive. It's true. And, and in 2020, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the content. I really did. It was uh, for me, even just two years ago now, my first experience seeing and hearing some of these, you know, legends in the industry. Uh, you get that. Uh, you can thank not only Randy for that, but Steve Combs, um, who was a, you know, absolute, you know, legend around here in terms of, uh, you know, the bourbon industry and a great writer. And so um, that brings perfectly around to f- like fully going into the KBF because um, my idea to kind of reach out to you in the first place came about because I met Steve. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're both part of the bourbon and banter community. He's now, you know, graduated to being the editor there. Yep. Uh, and I've written a couple of things for him. I have an article coming out hopefully in the next couple of days or weeks uh, and overall he's just a very easy guy to talk to and and he's amazing cl- and clearly brilliant at what he does and uh we were talking about the kbf when i was debating about you know whether or not to come down you know what should i what should i do um, and i also asked him before this interview you know if there's one thing i should ask <laughs> about and it's no it's i can tell you now it's not any gotcha questions or anything like that oh, it's great bring it on but um he said that we wanted to focus on uh, a mantra of yours which i think has been alluded to really throughout this conversation but to put it into a couple of words he said it's do less to do the best mm-hmm. do and fewer things better exactly mm-hmm. so and that's been 
in some ways it seems counterintuitive because you know you went kind of all out at at uh, first to Bardstown and now at Kentucky Owl and uh, everywhere you've been, you know the experience can seem like you're doing so much to but, create it. But in reality, we're right. very focused. Right, and it's really cultivating and culling what you don't need to elevate what is still there. Um, so he described it as a new model at the KBF, which has been what you've been describing as well. It's really true. And, I, and it's something that I, I very much have come to believe. Or, I mean, it's something we practice in every business that I'm involved in. You're far better, in my opinion, it's far better to just do a couple of things really well. you know. And then once you get those down and you understand them, then you move to the next. Bardstown, we focused on, yes, we moved quickly, but we, we focused on production. We didn't move from production into the restaurant, into the visitor center until we got each one right. We got production right, got John Hargrove in, production was underway, it was smooth, moved to the restaurant. We got the restaurant right, we moved to the visitor center. You know, at the same time, yeah, we had the brand we were working on in the background, but each we didn't try to do them all at once because if you try to do too many things at once, you fail. I think you know when we look at the Bourbon Festival experience last year, you know, and you look at it this year, you know, one of the you know things that we sat about, and we're, we're very critical with ourselves as a team when we sit down. Okay, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? You know, one of the things when we look at last year is you know what we were we were probably too ambitious in terms of what we tried to do that first year. So we're going to make sure that we do fewer things better. Let's really focus. Like, what is it that we need to do right? Let's get those right. And then we move to the next thing. And personally, I think it's how you build a great business because you should continue to evolve all the time. If you're not evolving as a business, then, you know, you're stuck. You know, you're falling behind somebody else. So you have to always be evolving, but it doesn't mean you have to be doing a million things at once. You can do, you can focus, you can move quickly, you can focus um, and you can move forward you can do all those things and still stay uh, without kind of getting sidetracked on too many things. You do too many things. You're not going to be able to pull it off and you have to be realistic about your resources, the number of people you have, all of those things they, they all come into, you know, you have to take them all into account. It does sound incredible. And uh, I, I know many, many friends who are going to be there and I promise I will make it down next year. It'll be even but, better next year. That, hey. Uh. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Impex imports premium and rare whiskey, gin, rum, mezcals, liqueurs, and cordials from all over the world, from Scotland to Japan to Israel, Belgium, and Wales. Whether it's Kilhoman, Pandaren, Port Eskeg, Glenallachy, Ohishi, Fukano, M&H, Ardnamurkin, Black Tot, and more there's guaranteed to be something in the Impex portfolio you'll love. Impex also oversees some of the most prestigious independent bottlers in the game, including Single Malts of Scotland, Single Cast Nation, Adelphi Selection, and its own Impex collection. Take a look at their site, impexbev.com, or reach out if you're curious about their offerings. I'm proud to have many of their bottles on my shelves and love sharing them with friends whenever I can. Thank you to Sam and to the team for joining the Whiskering Podcast as guest and sponsor. Uh, so one of the things I wanted to ask about in terms of what you were talking about, about law changes uh, that benefited the KBF, one of them was that uh, these distilleries could now sell bottles as soon as people tasted them. They could be like, oh, I really like that. Can I buy a bottle? Here you are. Game changer. 
game changer. Um, now, this is, of course, uh, Kentucky only. New this year. New this year, Kentucky only. Thanks to Chad McCoy and the Kentucky Distillers Association. Right. And uh, I I don't think it was something that I necessarily missed in terms of, of uh, bourbon and whiskey news from, from Kentucky, but the kind of bigger story, if you will, from earlier this year was all about would private barrel selections go away mm-hmm. um, or could you do them anymore? It was um, into that bill. Okay. And see, the focus, at least from my perspective, was entirely on the private pick aspect of it. Right. But in reality, long term, I mean, you would have found a way to do private picks one way or another. I don't think anyone seriously considered that that was ever going to go away. Um, but the idea that you could have someone taste something and pick it up and you weren't at the distillery is a big thing. Uh, you weren't at a tasting fest, like a whiskey fest or something like that, but like out in the open. Yep. Just bottle you know, sales yeah. and festivals. Bottle I mean, sales and festivals. It's a huge change. And so, uh, you know, this is something that we've, uh, I know we've been semi pushing for in New York. It's been a little slow going because we had the benefit of having that farm distillers law go, you know, back to like 2005. So, so distillers have been able to sell on site as opposed to going, you know, back through the distributors and, uh, and everything like that. But that's also of course, different from being at a festival. You try something at whiskey fest in the Marriott in times square. That's great. But you better hope that you remember and write down that you really like that thing. Otherwise, by the end of it, you know, you've tasted 40 yeah, things and, and you get it. Well, now you can get it right here. Here it exactly. is. And right. it you don't have to opens up huge marketing opportunities. And it's one of those things where in some ways it's such a groundbreaking change that we jumped on it right away with the bourbon festival. And we were even ahead of the distilleries and we're, you know, doing educational sessions now that we're planning for with the distilleries to get ready for the festival where it's like, wait a second. Oh, are you sure we can do that? I'm like, yes, you can do it. That's what the, and you know, there's even this level of kind of not only skepticism, but it's like, how, like, how do we do it? And are you sure we can do that? Yeah, yeah, we can. Yes, you're allowed to do it. And so, you know, it's funny, even in the, you know, the larger corporate context of getting them to like understand and then execute on here's the opportunity. It's such a big opportunity in the sense that it's like, well, okay, well, we can sell anything. Yeah, you can sell anything. So, like let that marketing teams run with that, right? What does that mean? Well, I mean, you can take that to a logical extension. You've got your master distiller standing there. You've got, he's got a pen in his hand. You can sell any bottles there. You can dig into the archives or anything else you want at the distillery. And that leads to tremendous possibilities. Now layer on top social media, everything else. And you're now in a, you know, whiskey lovers paradise at the bourbon festival. And so when you think about where we're headed as a festival in, in the next several years, think about that kind of what I just described there. It might not all happen this year, but you give it a couple years and you're going to have stuff. You're going to have people coming, I believe from all over the world to this festival to be able to get products, get them signed, collect things, buy them where you would never have access to that anywhere else. Absolutely. And I can personally vouch. I know two people from Australia who are going to be coming in for this. Uh, and, you know, that's a, that's a damn long flight. So um, that's, but that's commitment right bourbon, there. You'll make that flight. Absolutely. Um, and so uh, just, you know, being mindful of time, uh, I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, if 
if do you think first that that was kind of the biggest change that has gone on for this year has been the ability to sell certainly for the bourbon festival it's two yeah. things the ability to sell the bottles directly and you know we heard from the public loud and clear because last year we had a ticket to get in and then you bought a wristband to pull off tabs it's too mm. complicated and mm. so it's like you know treat the consumer you know response the, the responsible the responsible drinkers we have no issues with the the community that comes and drinks bourbon the bourbon festival they are yeah, everyone is well behaved they're there to respect the product um so give them the opportunity and make it easy for the consumer to try what they want to try that's what we did so your sampling's all included one ticket price easy in and out access different content over three days. So you can come, come for a day, you can come for a weekend, $125 ticket with all your sampling included for three days. Come for one day, come for three days. It doesn't matter. It's a great price, come in and out. So whether you're here for a day, whether you're here for three days, you go to the distilleries during the day, you come into the festival, you go out of the festival, you come back, you know, it gives you the ability to have this, you know, wonderful access. And again, it goes to the experience. How do we make the experience better? That was the number one change this year. And number two, the bottle sales, you know, again, experience, you know, giving the consumer the opportunity to get stuff they could never get before. Looking into crystal ball is the uh, last question to close out for tonight. Looking towards 23, um, as it stands right now on, what is it? June 7th mm-hmm. of 2022. What do you think is going to be the biggest change for next year? Gosh, you know, I, I, Honestly, I have no idea. And the reason I say that very honestly, because if you had asked me about these two changes a year ago, I would have told you, I don't know. And these two changes came directly. One of them came directly from customer feedback. One came from legislative change. You know, we'll go through this year. And again, like any good business, we'll look at how do we make it better and we'll have changes that come out. So I don't know. And that's the honest opinion. Hey, that's honesty is good. That's what we want as bourbon drinkers. We want honesty much transparency as we can reasonably expect, uh, which you've given plenty of tonight. So, um, David, thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, stick on with me just for a minute after, after recording. Um, in the meantime, where can people find you? Where should they be looking for you? You know, you can, you find me personally. Well, you can find Kentucky Al, you know, <laughs> online. You can, can, can find the Bourbon Festival at kybourbonfestival.com. I'm always here in Bardstown. I live in Bardstown. I'm a resident. I live downtown right in the center of town. So, um, you know, please uh, feel free to reach out anytime. Awesome. And we'll have uh, links for the festival, for Kentucky Owl, for um, tickets to the festival in the show notes for this episode. So uh, if there are any still available at that point, which uh, there are probably a couple still available at that point, but who knows? And if you have an interest and you happen to want to follow me, you can follow me at Mandel David um, on Instagram. Absolutely. And of course, follow uh, Whiskey My Wedding Ring, Whiskey Ring Podcast, and all social media platforms. Uh, make sure to join the Whiskey Ringers Facebook group. It's a private group. You've got three super easy questions. If you can't answer those three questions, you probably shouldn't be drinking whiskey. Uh, so that's an episode. That's a wrap. David Mandel, thank you so much. Pleasure. <laughs>